Welcome to episode 11 here on Captives of Truth. I'm your host, Jonathan Olivares, and what a privilege it is to be joined with you all again. Um, I hope that you are all doing well and you have been learning so far with our series on the five points of Calvinism, also known as the doctrines of grace. Um, now, today we are going to get right into it, and um, we are speaking on a controversial topic. Um, I mean, I believe all points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace are all um, controversial to a lot of people, uh, but this one in particular, very controversial, um, as it refers to the very atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, but before we get into it, let me um, do a little review with you that when we say the doctrines of grace or the five points of Calvinism, it's not to exalt John Calvin, neither is it centering the basis of our theology on Calvin's work or teachings, uh, but even Calvin would say himself that his teachings and his study um, was all from Scripture. So whenever we speak of the doctrines of grace, it's just the biblical view of um, sola scriptura, what the Bible teaches alone. And I understand that there are differing views from, um, from mine and from the doctrines of grace and from Calvin's standpoint, um, which I also respect and understand. Um, and the purpose of this teaching is really to um, give you um, what I believe to be the closest to Scripture or at least the objective meaning of what Scripture really has to say. And so we've dealt with now, I think, the first three letters of this um, acronym, which is the TULIP acronym, and we dealt with total depravity, which deals with the very um, corruption of man, and that man, because of the fall in the garden, is totally incapable and unable to choose God on his own. And this total depravity um, has to be changed or has to be um, awakened by an outside source and cannot come from within. And this outside source re uh, refers to God, who the Bible says through the process of regeneration, uh, His Spirit washes us and makes us alive according to Ephesians 2. And uh, before our salvation, our works are all filthy rags, but as He saves us, He makes us a new creation and transforms us, gives us a new heart, a new mind to love and desire uh, to do God's will and purposes. Uh, but we must first identify how man is depraved on his own, taking us to Romans 1. We suppress God's truth and the wrath of God is upon us. And uh, Romans 3, no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks God, right? And so we moved forward to the second acronym, which is unconditional election, which is very vital and crucial, um, which um, tells us that God's sovereignty overrides anyone's emotions. And like I stated in the last episode, that whenever we read the Bible, and if when we are confronted with it and want to know God's purpose and plan, we really have to set aside all bias all presuppositions, all emotions, and our ideals. Because when you go into the Bible, you're going to start reading that God has an intention, God has an objective plan that may go up against your beliefs, may go up against your ideals, presuppositions that were taught and implanted in your mind by pastors or teachers or things you've read. 
But whenever you go into the scripture and you just, you know, set aside everyone's bias and you just are left with the plain text, what do you come up with? What do you get out of it when you are doing a proper contextual study of the scriptures? And I can ensure you that when you read the scriptures in that way, you will realize that everything that you thought about, everything that you held dear to um, is, is now centralized um, and it could be changed possibly, could be further established upon God's objective truth. And so um, we find out in Scripture that really it is God who chooses. It's God who ordains, God who predestines. Um, it is God who calls out. And uh, if you've not listened to that um, unconditional election episode, I highly encourage you to do that um, because that's going to play a vital role for our study of this third letter in the acronym, which is limited atonement. We first have to consider that God is authoritative to choose. God is God of all. And that, as we read in Romans 9, um, we are just but creation. And um, we are just but the creatures that God has made. And will we question our maker of why he made us this way, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use? And I think grace is much greater displayed in that teaching because it shows us that none of us really deserve grace at all. And amazing grace does not necessarily mean um, fairness in the human perspective. Grace is actually unfair because fair give, brings us to hell. It drives us to hell. Uh, but grace is an undeserved favor that God gives unto a sinner that does not deserve it, but gives it anyway. So last episode, we established that those who did not receive grace are not people who are done injustice or people who have been done unfairly. Um, no one is done with injustice. Uh, God does not do injustice. What happens is the other group that receives grace receives a gift that they don't deserve well, on the other hand, the other group that didn't receive that gift are receiving complete justice. So whenever it comes to being fair, uh, that, I think that's subjective and I think that's very um, humanly. It's, it comes from our human emotions and our trigger points. And of course, we do not want to see anyone perish. But the scriptures, um, I believe, will um, speak out for its own when we go into the scriptures. Now, of course, I do agree that a lot of people who might be listening to this podcast might disagree, and I'm open to that, and I am aware of that. Uh, but I want to share to you this particular view, uh, this third letter of the acronym. And so I guess we only dealt with two letters. Yeah. So today we'll be on the third, um, limited atonement, okay? This is very controversial because limited atonement is going to centralize our understanding of the very purpose of why Jesus came to die to begin with. Now, let me first say this and um, just answer this question on your own. What was Christ's purpose on the cross? And I'm sure there will be thousands of answers um, to that one question. But just keep that question dear to you. What was the purpose of it? Okay. Um, so when we speak of limited atonement, it refers to the very definite purpose of Christ's death on the cross. The very definite purpose. Now, you, can, you and I can agree whether you answered forgiveness or to save or to heal or to, um, to 
to sanctify or to glorify or whatever answer you gave to that question I asked, we all can come to agreement that the reason why Christ came to die is for a definite purpose. It means it has an ultimate purpose. It's not something sporadic or random. It has an ultimate purpose that was decreed before the creation was. And so if we can agree that it's for a definite reason and purpose, we can move forward. Um, limited atonement can also be recognized as particular atonement, intentional atonement, or this one I like to I like to describe it if you don't like the word limited, definite atonement, which means it is successful, it is properly established, and it properly accomplished, and is still accomplishing what it was set out to do. So we know for a fact that Christ's death brought forth forgiveness, salvation, sanctification, and glorification in the future. Uh, but what limited atonement really um, has in controversy to many people who don't agree with it, the, uh, I guess in better terms, the issue that men have with limited atonement is, who is it available to? Who is forgiveness, salvation, sanctification, and glorification available to? Immediately, you'll get a large group saying, it's for all humanity. And then you got more of the Reformed Calvinistic side saying, it's for a particular people, right? So this is the question that you should answer for yourself. Who is this available to? Who is salvation available to? Is it available for all men? Or is it available for some men? Now, when we use the word all, we have to make a great distinction. Because all um, could refer to all of humanity or all of the country contextual usage in the scriptures, which refers to all kinds of people. So if we are to narrow it down even further, the argument is not really about Calvinism and Arminianism. It's more so about um, Calvinism versus universalism. And um, universalism believes that all people will be saved because all of the work of Christ on the cross is for all men. So since it's for all men, the atoning work of Christ, which is sufficient, is it's going to have to save all men, right? Whereas the Calvinistic view is the salvific work of Christ is sufficient and sufficient to secure the salvation of a particular people. So um, just so I didn't lose any of you, um, what the argument really is, is is salvation for all men or is it for a particular people? That is the great question. Now, the doctrine of limited atonement specifies to whom Christ died for. Um, this doctrine specifies where salvation is uh, or to who salvation is available uh, for. Now, I want to quote a few verses here. John chapter 10, verse 15 says that I lay my life down for the sheep. The words of our Lord teach us that he is the one that lays his life down for the sheep. Now, this is the mission, I lay my life down. Now, this verse speaks of a particular group, and the group here is the sheep. Now, the question is, who are the sheep? And later in that same chapter, Jesus explains that the sheep are those who the Father has given him. 
If we want to further elaborate, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, remember last week, or two weeks ago, in last episode, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. So who are the sheep? The sheep are the chosen of God before the world was. These are the people that the Father has drawn to Christ and that Christ has taken care of and has never lost, according to John 10. The sheep are God's chosen. Okay, So here from the beginning, we realize that the mission of the atonement before his crucifixion is referring to a particular people. Now, of course, we cannot say that everyone in the world are God's sheep. We cannot say that everyone in the world are all sheep because I believe a lot of you will agree that there are sheeps and there are goats and that these sheep are pertaining to those who come, those who follow. So this is something to consider. I lay my life down for the sheep. Now, I do know, and later on we'll deal with uh, those verses that speak of all men, the whole world, like John 3.16, um, and all of those passages. But I just want you to consider. Because when you read the Bible, folks, um, you read John 3.16 for the whole world, right? And then you get to John 10, and you realize the same author is now talking about atonement for a particular people. So now it seems like he's contradicting himself or... Um, how are we really to understand the author's intentions of his writing? That's the most important part. Um, it's not that the writers are contradicting themselves, but they actually have an intent, an objective um, meaning to what they said in, in the usages of those words. Um, so it's one thing or the other because the scriptures are clear, and I think this is one of the big factors to why I really had to dig down in scripture because... Um, Previously, I had the Arminian view, and I could not, um, I could not deny the fact that Scripture was going up against my view. Also, that I held that salvation's for all men, but at the same time, the Scripture is saying there is a particular people He's saving. So, um, it's one or the other, and um, we have to explain those things. And what what is it really that the author is saying? Um, so, going back to John ten, the sheep are referring to the chosen and God or Christ lays his life down for them. So the sheep are God's chosen people before the world was even created, according to Ephesians 1. Um, now, limited atonement teaches that Christ's death was purposely for th these chosen sheep and not for the entire world. As I mentioned, it's a particular salvation. In the Old Testament, it's very clear also that when the messianic prophecies were given, it was pertaining to a particular people. It, it never mentions a entire humanity or entire um, humanity in the sense of individuals, every single person born in the world. Matter of fact, the Old Testament refers to a particular people that's, and even more specific, it uses the words, my people or his people. So whenever messianic prophecies are given, like in the book of Isaiah, it always refers to God's people. And if he's coming to save, he's coming to save God's people. In Matthew, the scripture says that he came to save and forgive the sins of his people. So it's still specific, it's particular, and not open to every single person in human history. So 
let me use Isaiah 53, for example. Isaiah 53, in verse 8 all the way to 12, it speaks of this Messiah, referring to Christ, uh, who is going to be stricken, and he will bear the transgression. And here comes the particular group of my people. Now, it's, it, this is not just referring to Jews. This is referring to all that God has called and chosen according to Ephesians 1. So Christ will bear and Christ will be stricken for the transgressions of his people. And then in verse 12 of Isaiah 53, he says he bore the sin of many. It doesn't say all. Isaiah 53, 12 says he bore the sin of many. It's particular. It's a definite atonement for specific people, not referencing all men. And I know this is troubling you. And, and, and when you're listening to this, you have to consider that all our emotions, all our biases, all our presuppositions have to be set aside. And I do challenge you that after you listen to this episode, you go down and read the scriptures and see what does it actually say and what am I getting out of it? Okay, so Isaiah 53, for example, is a great chapter to show you a particular salvation, a particular saving work of the Messiah, and it's really uh, particular. I mean, if you just listen to last episode on unconditional election, you realize that from God calling Adam and Eve, uh, Jacob and Esau, there was already a particular choosing there, and within Jacob's lineage, you also get... Uh, the 12 tribes, and then you also get Israel being separate from every other nation. You got, um, you got David set aside from his offspring. The Messiah will come. And so there's a lot of uh, separation, a lot of particular groupings that are happening. And God's hand is, is actively working on a specific people. Um, and it's very clear. So... We have to really challenge um, our view of salvation and understand the intent of salvation and the mission of God's saving work that is indicated in Genesis chapter 3, the Proto-Evangelion, when um, God prophesies and states that in the future, um, the seed of the woman is going to bruise the serpent. And um, what was that all about, right? It's, it's, it has to be God's intention that we have to identify and not our wants in, in what we want Scripture to mean. So a common misconception with limited atonement, many people think that when we say limited atonement, it's lessening and limiting the value and the work of Jesus Christ. Um, some people say that because you believe in limited atonement, you're only limiting, you're limiting God's work for a group of people and not for all people. Um, I would say that we really have to consider how we view Christ's atoning work. Um, let me ask you these questions. Is Christ's work on the cross only to enable us to choose? Because if you think about it, many people believe that the death of Christ was the igniter to allow men now to choose him now let's let's challenge our view of salvation what what is our view of christ's atonement is his work on the cross only to enable us to choose 
or is the work of atonement to accomplish one salvation for all time? Because um, we have to pick: is salvation meant for is is the work of salvation meant to save, or is the work of salvation just to enable? To choose, and folks, I don't want you to get confused when I say the work of salvation. I only what I mean is um, the death and the resurrection of Christ. Christ on the cross. That's what I mean. Is Christ on the cross only to ignite someone to choose, or is it to accomplish and secure one salvation? So you have to consider those things. If Christ's work is for all humanity, as many believe. Do we think that it is insufficient for all of humanity to be saved? So if we believe that Christ, Christ's death is for all of humanity, now the question is, is all of humanity getting saved? This is why I want to challenge your view of atonement because if you believe Christ's work at the cross is powerful, and remember you agreed that his coming had a purpose, a mission that it was going to accomplish. So if Christ's coming from the Father was to fulfill salvation for men, then that means his death is going to have to accomplish salvation. So if we believe salvation is for all of humanity, then that means all of humanity has to be saved. That's why I'm saying this issue is against universalism. Universalism believes that Christ's death is going to encompass all of humanity and somehow everyone's just going to get saved. But we know that that is entirely not true. We know that not all of humanity gets saved. We know that men reject him and we know that men accept him. But if we believe that salvation is for all humanity, for those who reject, and because there are people who reject, are we saying then that the salvific work of Christ on the cross is insufficient for all of humanity to be saved. Many people quote um, uh, the passage in the, Old, in the New Testament that says that God desires that men, would all men to be saved. So if God desires all men to be saved, doesn't that mean that if God desires for men to be saved, that he in his sovereignty and his authority, isn't he omnipotent enough that if that's the reason why he sent his son down that he is going to accomplish that that if indeed if salvation is for all men desireful of God that all men will be saved shouldn't all of humanity be saved right now for one I don't agree that the term all men there refers to every single human being contextually I believe that that the word all there refers to all kinds of people all different colors, all different races, all from all different places of the world. But it doesn't specifically mean all human beings because if that's the case, then the Christ or Christ's death on the cross is insufficient to save every human being. Now, I know the argument isn't done because most people would say, no, that's not what we believe. We believe Christ's death is for all of humanity, but we do not believe that it is insufficient. Christ's death is sufficient but it is up to man's choice. Most people will result in saying that it is up to man's choice. So Christ's work is perfect, but it's up to man to make it work. So if that's the case that um, 
It's up to our choice to make the atonement atonement perfect. Isn't that devaluing what Jesus has done and come for? Because, listen, this is what I'm trying to get us to identify. When the Father sent His Son, the Father was not seeking someone to finish His work, uh, Jesus' work. Matter of fact, when the Father sent His Son, He sent an infallible person who will do the work of atonement or redemption. And He sent His own Son, which is perfect, Jesus Christ. And in the Father's mind, He was not thinking that humanity had to finish the work of redemption because we all believe that redemption was finished at the cross. So if it's up to man's choice, are we saying that we have the authority to enable and disable Christ's atoning work? If Christ's work is perfect, why is it dependent upon man's choice to make that work perfect? To make that work um, effective? Think about it. If we believe that the Father sent His perfect Son to do a perfect work, then that means it's finished. Jesus said, tetelestai. It means it is finished. That means He perfectly died and He is perfectly saving. Hebrews 7 says that He is making intercession and continually praying for man to be saved. So Jesus' perfect work is it, when it stands alone, it's perfect enough. I think it, we, don't, we are not needed there. I don't think our choices are needed at all. Because if we are going to say that in order for one to be saved, our choice really matters. Now, don't get me wrong. Choice is involved in salvation. But what jerks us to choose God? What ignites us to choose God? Because the passage of Ephesians 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Do we suddenly wake up in the morning wanting to choose God? No. So if ever anyone comes to the point of repentance, choosing God, it's because God has granted him faith to receive uh, Romans 10. God has awakened him from his total depravity and regenerated him so that he could receive um, the very words of the gospel. And so, let me go back. If we are going to say that my yes is what God needs to make the work of Christ effective, or my no, that means that humanity is equally sovereign to God that we can deny and reject His saving work. We can deny and reject His salvific and sufficient work. Now, isn't this view of you know of of salvation isn't this view lessening the value of his saving work isn't that devaluing Christ's work at the cross because I'm sure all of you would agree that when God does something it's perfect so everything is perfect except salvation where a man can deny him where a man can re uh, disable his work at the cross doesn't this view express that God's saving hand can only work if we cooperate? So when Jesus says it is finished, it really isn't finished because 
what finishes our salvation is if I cooperate. Is that really what we are trying to say? It doesn't seem so powerful after all if we think of it that way. If we can disable it, then it doesn't seem so powerful after all. So that's why I'm challenging just our thoughts. If salvation is for all humanity, why isn't all men being saved? And if you start saying because of man's choice, then that means we are taking away from Christ's salvific work at the cross because when the Father sent him, he sent an infallible person who will accomplish salvation. I mean, this is not a 50-50 here. Isaiah 53 tells us he is going to save his people. That is perfect. That is, that is established. It is, a, it is an accomplished work. It is not something that God sent his son to give a chance or give a possibility or an opportunity. That's what some people teach, that salvation is an opportunity. No, salvation is God's active work that is going to be done whether you like it or not. Um, and that's exactly it, right? And let me, let me give you another analogy when we use the term born again, which just means to be made new, right? When you were born into the world, you didn't want to get born into the world. You had no choice in that involved. The same way in John chapter 3, whoever's born of spirit is spirit. They do not know where this force comes from. It's a wind that blows where you don't know which direction it's coming from. So salvation is not up to man, it's up to God. And when God actively decreed salvation, and when he's moving actively, he is going to save without hindrance. So if I say that man's choice can disable God's work of salvation, then now I think whoever holds on to this view is devaluing the work of Jesus Christ. But limited atonement exalts the fact that when Christ died on the cross, he came to fulfill his mission and has fulfilled his mission. How? By saving those whom the Father has given him, according to John chapter 10, the sheep. And I lay my life down for his sheep. So when Jesus died, he died to secure for all time the salvation of his sheep. So there's no devaluing, there's no lessening there. And again, I want us to set aside, and I want us to be very objective here because when we bring in human definition of being fair, fair will bring us to hell. Grace will give a gift to people who don't deserve it. And grace is a gift. It does not mean that everyone should receive this gift because first of all, we don't deserve it. And who are we to think that those who haven't received it deserve it? None of us deserve it. So again, uh, I just wanted to bring that up to our attention. The reality is scripture tells us that not all men are saved. We know this for a fact that in the Old Testament, there are many people who died and gone and weren't saved. We know that in the New Testament, many have died and gone, weren't saved. So it's clear that all in the scriptures that not everyone are getting saved. So universalism is denied right there. To say that salvation is for all men would mean salvation is to save every part, every person. It's perfect to save everyone. Um, of course, the Arminian view is the salvation work of Christ is perfect, but um, it's halfway in the bridge, meaning that we meet halfway with God. Um, I don't see that in Scripture at all. 
And I'm going to use verses that will help us clear out a few things later, and I hope that helps us. Um, so in continuation with last episode on unconditional election, we uh, identified that God has chosen from the start, right? So that's crucial for us to know. And since God has authority, He is sovereign, and He is able to choose and do as He wills with no one's hindrance. So no one's choice is involved. No one says no. No one says yes. But if anyone does come to that point, we understand that those who say yes are God's sheep that he has called, and those who says no are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Okay? So I want us to be clear on that. So those who believe in limited atonement believe that Christ's death has infinite value. So it's not that we devalue the salvific work of Christ. We actually raise it up and exalt it, believing that it has infinite value. It has so much value that it accomplishes and is, uh, sorry, it accomplished and is still accomplishing the intended purpose of the Father. So we all said in agreement, we all began in the beginning of this episode that we believe the Father has a purpose for his, his sending of His Son. And the purpose of the sending of His Son is accomplished at the cross. And it's to save a particular people that He will secure for all eternity. That's why you read sheep. This is why you read my elect. This is why in the book of Revelation, He calls a church for Himself without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. It is a particular people. So believe it or not, Arminians also believe in limited atonement. It, they just don't say it in that degree. Um, they might even say four-point Calvinism, which really isn't um, what Calvin taught at all. Um, but everyone believes in limited atonement because at the end of the day, those who are saved are still particular. It's those who come to him. I think the argument is the availability. To whom is this available for? Um, but again, we are even being more specific than saying all humanity. We're saying God has chosen from the beginning and those are the ones he is saving. Um, now, those who hold on to an unlimited view of atonement, which is the ones who believe salvation is for all men, they believe that God's love is general. So it, it sounds very nice that God's love is for every person. That when Jesus died, it was death for all of humanity, equally spreading his love, lathering it upon the world. And so it's general, it's for all, right? But if you think about this type of love, it's for all men, but we don't see that God is saving anyone in particular. What do I mean? What I mean is if God's love is, is displayed in this way, it's very general, it's for all, but at the same time, this love is not saving anyone in particular. It pretty much means that this love is leaving the matter of man's salvation up to their choices. So this love that the unlimited atoning view has is a general love, but it's a love that leaves it up to man's choice. So is that really loving? Is that really loving at all? That he is still going to leave it up to man to choose? If his original purpose of coming was to save, why not finish that mission by what he came to do? Why come to die to leave it up to man's decision? Is that love? When we know man's decision is very fallible, 
And if Christ, who is infallible, came, why not finish salvation? So God's love is general, but it doesn't save anyone in particular. He leaves it in the hands of those who choose. Um, he leaves it in the hands of humanity to choose. Is that the type of love you want? Uh, well, the limited atonement view exalts the love of God. How? The love of God is shown and set out to show true love in spite of our sin, saving a particular people. Now, I keep saying that, but it, it truly does exalt God's love. How? Because it shows you that when He came, He came to fulfill and establish and perfect why He came. It's not to leave it in the hands of sinners to choose. When Christ came, He came and said, Hey, I'm going to finish it, and it is not in your hands. John 10, the Father will send. The Father who drew, I kept, and no one can take them out of my hands. That is true love. He came to take, you could even put it in these words, He came to take the bullet for us, and He preserved us and sanctified us for Himself. That's true love. True love is not taking the bullet, but leaving it up to man's choice to come. True love will take you out of the flame. Um, let me give you another analogy. The unlimited view um, is, says that salvation is for all. It's general. Let me use this analogy. We are in, there are people drowning. People are drowning. Or people are in the water, deep down in the water. But I have a boat that can anchor these people up and save these people. If Jesus is that captain of the ship and he is the one willing to save all, but yet he has the capacity to save them, but he leaves it up to the people to hold on to the anchor. Um, is, that, is that equal love? Is that the love that we want? But the limited atonement view is telling us that the ones that the captain came to arrive and save, like he came to find these sinners. He came to find these people in need. And Romans 5, he died for the weak. He died for the ungodly. When the captain shows up, he's going to save everyone who's there, right? He's going to save everyone who's there. That's why he came. He's not going to come and, um, you know what? If you want to come up here, you're going to have to, you're going to have to choose and fight your way up. That's, that's not how it works. If Christ shows up to the scene, he is going to save. And uh, it's not up to you. Because you're already dead, is what Paul says. You're already drowning. Um, so I think it would be silly to think it's general, but it's not particular, and it's still left in the hands of people to choose him. This love of God is a love decreed from the beginning of time that is set out and established to perfect and is to accomplish man's salvation. It's perfect. And um, when he came, he came to die for his sheep. I think that's very particular. Now, um, I'm, I'm sure I'm missing out a lot of things, which um, we don't have enough time to tackle this all together, but um, I'm, I'm very open to dialogue and explanation, but I'm sure there's a lot uh, of rebuttal with this, but I just want to get you to understand the differences. Um, I just want you to consider which sounds more loving to us, a love that is particular and, and more accomplished or a love that leaves it up to the crowd.
that's that's particularly the Armenian view. And I'm not saying I hate Armenians. I'm not saying I don't like people who are in believe in Armenianism. I love them. They're still my brother. But there's that great difference. You are with us on the bridge, but you met God halfway. For us, the love of God goes through the bridge, whereas the Armenian view is leaving it up to the crowd. It's halfway. Uh, I don't see that Scripture supports that enough to show us that we have to finish the atonement work, the atoning work. Um, but when he died, he died to save completely those he would die for. Otherwise, if you believe it's for all men, all men should have um, been saved. And I think the issue really is, is Christ's work at the cross powerful enough to save, right? If it's powerful enough to save, who is it intended to save? If you say all men, then that means it should have saved all men. But if it's saving a particular people as limited atonement believes, then it's perf perfect to save those particular people. But if you believe that it's all men, but not all men are being saved, then now you're devaluing the very power of his salvific work. Just things to consider. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. Whenever salvation is referenced in the Bible, it's, it's openly for the general, right? It's uh, when the apostles were teaching uh, John the Baptist, repent, right? Um, the call of salvation is universal. Now, some of you might get confused now. Well, wait, hold on, Pastor John. You just mentioned it's for particular people, but why are you saying now it's universal? Um, let, me, let, me, let me quote a few passages in the scripture, and then let me tackle that particular thing that you were that might come to your mind. I'm not neglecting the fact that in the Bible it says in Isaiah 45, turn to me and be saved. It's general. Matthew 11:28, Jesus said, "Come to me, all you that uh, labor or heavy laden. I'll give you rest." 2 Peter chapter 3:9, "All should come to repentance." Right? Now, let me pause. 2 Peter 3 is often used to refer to all of humanity. But contextually speaking, Peter uses the word us in that passage. And he's referring to the very church who are saved there. He's not talking to all of humanity in that epistle. He's referring to the church there that were, you know, slightly getting discouraged, slightly were discouraged because they felt that God maybe had forgotten them. But he's saying God is not slack in his promises, right? So he's referring to the church when he, he was speaking to the church, not to all of humanity. And the all there that all should come to repentance is referring to all of them that were there, not all of humanity, because the whole context of that epistle is referring to them. Um, if we are to take verse 9 to refer to the all of the world, it would, it would just be a big jump from the context of what Peter was really talking about. So anyway, when, whenever, it is, whenever it comes to preaching the gospel evangelism, again, this is the point I made last time. If salvation is for a particular people, why are we still evangelizing? Well, first of all, God still has a lot of sheep that he still needs to save. Secondary, this is God's command for us to preach the gospel. And number three, how can men be saved if we don't preach? So God is still saving through our preaching. And this is why the call of salvation is universal and you get results of rejection and acceptance. Those who come 
as, as, as we call, we are calling, come, come. Those who come are God's sheep. They are the ones who have been given faith to hear and receive. So those are the people that end up in your church and follow and get discipled. Those are the true sheep of God. But those who reject, those who do not come, those are the people who are still left in their sins and trespasses. And Paul says they are still those dead people. So those are the ones who are unregenerate. Those are the ones who are goats. Those are the ones who are not God's sheep. And they are not the ones who God chose. But the ones who came, who accepted, and those who follow, who get discipled, those are the ones who Christ died for. Why? Because you see a trend. Their life has been changed. They've been made a new creation creature. And God is going to save them at the end when he comes back. So the fulfillment of Christ's salvific work is complete in that one person's life because he's the one that granted salvation to that person. Okay? Another misconception is um, these passages uh, more deeper um, in regards to the salvific work of Christ, the atonement. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, many people quote from this who hold on to the uh, unlimited atonement view. It says, He is the propitiation for our sins, not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So the apostle John is saying that Christ's death is not just for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Okay, now questions to consider. Who and where were they when he said this? Okay, John chapter 1, 29, John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What did John mean by world? 2 Corinthians 5, 14, the message of reconciliation Christ died for all, right? 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 6, ransom for all. Now, th these are just some verses, but there's so many verses that use the word all, 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 right? Now, let's get into specifics here. The verses that I just read seem to imply that the authors are saying salvation is for the whole world. And some of you will be like, see, Pastor John, it says whole world. It says all. It should mean all. Isn't that what it means? First, we have to ex acknowledge who were they speaking to at that time? And what did those words mean in their particular time frame? We cannot immediately assume that the word all or world is automatically to mean every single human. Okay? And some of you are surprised. What do you mean? Well, let me use another passage in the scripture that gives you the exact Greek word, the same Greek word that we just read in all of those passages. Why I'm saying you cannot assume that world means every single human being or all means every single human being. Go to Luke chapter 2, verse 1. Luke 2, verse 1 says, Caesar Augustus decreed that all the world would be registered. The, wor the word world is used there in Luke chapter 2. Caesar Augustus decreed that the whole world would be registered. And then verse 3 tells you that all went to be registered in his own town. Does this mean that the Asians and the Africans and the Caucasians and, the, and everyone else followed Caesar Augustus's decree? Did this, does this tell you that the Chinese, the Filipino, the Indian, they all went to 
to register? Of course not. Most of you will say that Luke 2 is not referring to the whole world. So now this is the question I have. The same word used in the same uh, same word used in other passages. We, if we're going to do an, a consistent exegesis of the scriptures, why can we interpret world in other passages like 1 Timothy 2.6, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, Timothy, uh, 1 John 2, John 1. Why are we interpreting the world there and all, the word all, to every single human being when, 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 when we get to Luke 2, we deny now that the world means every single human being because Luke 2 obviously is not referring that Caesar Augustus told the whole world, every single human being, to be registered. That's not what Luke 2 is saying. We can come to agreement that this is only referring to the people in their region, people in their context, people in their time frame, in their parameter and vicinity. This isn't referring to the Asians and the Africans and everyone else. You get my point? So this is why we cannot assume that the, world, the word world or all automatically means every single human being. Uh, John chapter 12, 19. Uh, when they saw that Jesus was getting famous, the Pharisees looked at each other, they spoke to each other, and what did they say? Look, the world has gone after him. Again, the same Greek word used there in that particular context. Does this mean that we are to interpret that every single human being followed Jesus Christ? The Chinese, the Filipino, the African, the Indian, everyone followed Jesus in John 12? Or does that mean the whole world there, the context of that word in that, in that passage means those in that limited area where Jesus was? I think the most <laughs> reasonable answer is the one, the second one that when John says the whole world has gone after him, when the Pharisees said that, they were referring to the people in Jesus' area. Not everyone, not every single person. So we see clearly that the word world does not necessarily mean the same um, meaning of our current day, or at least used in the context that we immediately presume it to be. So we come to realize that we cannot assume that those words indicate the same to the current usage of our world today. Okay, so I hope that answers that. Again, like like Second Peter three, um, when it says, "All come to repentance." Study the context. Who is being spoken to? Not just that one particular verse. Who are the people he's speaking to? Um. And are we going to take world and say that it's every single person? So when the Bible says God desires that all men would be saved, it refers to all different types of people, all different kinds of people, race, color. In the Jewish perspective, it's more than, and when John said in, in, in uh, 1 John 2, 2, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, John is saying, brothers, the salvation gift of God is not just for us here. It's for more people. That's what he was really saying. It's not saying that it's for every single person per se, but it's practically through the Jewish perspective, 
in John's time, it's not just for us Jews. It's for all men, even the Gentiles. It's available to them. That's what Paul was speaking about in the book of Acts. That's the controversy. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the Gentiles also. So it's for all kinds of people. But we can all agree with that. But we cannot set in stone say that it's for every single person because we know that that's not the case. Right? So let me close these with these words here that the purpose of the doctrine of limited atonement is to exalt the love and value of Christ's atoning work. That's why we teach limited atonement. It's not to discourage people and um, obviously the gospel is not, hey, you know what? God's only saved a few people. That's not what you present to people when you preach the gospel. When you preach the gospel, you give them Christ came to die for your sins, or Christ died, uh, came to die for the sins of the ungodly. And those who come are God's sheep. Limited atonement displays Christ's accomplishment in reaching out to the undeserving particular people, where John 10 says he will never lose, and the same particular people he prayed for in John 17. Even Jesus taught limited atonement limited atonement in the sense in John 6 he tells us the very planned uh, very plan of God for redemption from the beginning before he died long before he died Jesus already states why he was sent and it's not for the sake of saving like universalism would believe but to accomplish what the father has sent him to do so it's not so much about what we wanted Jesus' death to do, but what did the Father really intend when he sent his Son? Jesus taught us that in, redemptive, in the redemptive plan, in his redemptive ministry, he was, to be, he was to carry out in fulfillment the, divine, the divinely arranged, the divinely prearranged plan that he states in John 6. What does it say in the 38th verse? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will. So he states why he came down, not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, what's the Father's will? And here's what he says. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Who is he, who's that referring to? The ones that the Father has given, the ones that the Father has chosen, and the ones that, is, that the Father has set aside for His purpose, that He should not lose any of them. That's why I was sent. I was sent to save the people that God was sending my way. But He says, raise it up on the last day. He's going to raise us up on the last day. Let me end with uh, John 10, 11. And this verse, I believe, closes us out with a particular verse that describes Christ's definite mission. John 10, 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Jesus himself tells us that he died and he is about to die. This is before his death now. He is going to lay his life down for the sheep. This is a particular people. 
I think those who hold on to the unlimited view of atonement, they have more to prove when it comes to Christ's salvific work. Because it's either you believe Jesus' death was perfect to save, or you, you are now becoming inconsistent with the statement and saying it's perfect, but accomplished if man says yes. I think that view devalues the sovereignty of God. But this doctrine values the fact that he is the good shepherd and he is laying down his life for his sheep. Just like he did to the, for the twelve, just for, like he did for you and I, he is still saving people and those who come to, to salvation are those he died for, those he chose. Those are his sheep. That's why, brothers and sisters, I know that um, with this limited time that we had, that it may have been a lot of confusion or may have left you with a lot of curiosity now. But this is not where your study ends. I understand that there are some of you that might disagree with what I said, and there will be some of you that um, will realize what the Scripture is saying and will agree with me. But at the end of the day, my prayer is that we all grow when we go into the scriptures and identify what God is really trying to tell us. It does not matter what our feelings say or want. Our emotions and presuppositions are not what determine what scripture says. We must allow the scripture to speak for itself and identify. Are we assuming what the text says or what does the text really say when they say the whole world or all men? or Christ lays his life down for his sheep. We have to reconcile those things. The scripture does not contradict itself. It is us who have the interpretation that makes it confusing. We need to see the scripture objectively to how the Lord wants us to understand. And so I hope this episode has helped you in a way to see the view of limited atonement and to see that it is in no way devaluing Christ but further exalting the fact that when Jesus came down, he accomplished and is still accomplishing the very goal of salvation for those he came to save. And so if there's any questions, any disagreements, or any feedback that you have in regards to what I have taught today, feel free to reach out to us at www.captiveswithtruth.org. Email me there or follow us on Instagram and Facebook and give us a shout and follow us because there are um, weekly posts of things that I believe will be of encouragement for you. So without further ado, brothers and sisters, I will say farewell for now, and we will catch up next week on the next letter of our acronym, which is Irresistible Grace. That's why this is Brother Jonathan praying for your blessings and your peace. May God be with you. God bless. <music>